a new year uh, provides for us a new opportunity here at Lakeside to, to look at our mission statement and to define specifically what we mean when we say that we exist to love God, to care for all people, and to communicate his word. Uh, we try to keep it simple in the three words that we use, that they're common words that we'll use uh, in everyday language in a variety of things. One of the danger that happens when you use a word that many people use is we don't always mean the same thing by the words that we're using. And so some of us have a same vocabulary, but we use different dictionaries when we're asked to define them. And, and that's especially true of the word that we're looking at today, which is love. What does it mean to love someone? What is true love? And does love last? When we consider that word, if you just pull any 10 number of your friends and, and ask them to write it out, you'll get a variety of opinions that are found in that. But when we say... Uh, initially that we exist to love God. We want to be a place where people can individually connect with God. We believe that the God who made the world desires a relationship with each and every person. So we want anyone that comes uh, and makes a connection with us here at Lakeside to find this to be a place, not ultimately where they can connect with us, but where they can connect with God. He's the one who desires a relationship with each and every person. And we want to eliminate as many barriers as possible to a relationship that you can have with the God who made you and the God who died to save you. And then together we want to express that relationship in corporate worship. We gather together and sing songs together and share prayer requests together and give of our offerings together in the cause of missions because collectively we're expressing that we have individually a real true relationship with this God. So if you're someone and, and you're here just at the beginning of the year, and you, that isn't the language you would use. You wouldn't say that you have a relationship with God. Uh, that is one of the main things that we want to encourage uh, for you to pursue it is a relationship with him. And if you're someone who says, oh no, I, I have a relationship and I've had it for years, then we want that all that we do is an opportunity for you to deepen and to strengthen that relationship that you already have. But our expression and our desire to show our love to him is because we believe he first loved us. And so that's what we're going to focus on today is that aspect of our mission statement. And to do it, we're actually going to go to an Old Testament book called the book of Ruth. It's right after the book of Judges uh, in your Old Testament. You can already uh, begin to turn there if you want. We'll read uh, from chapter one in just a second. But we're going through this because one of the important things to build up our faith and to help us to see what a relationship with God is all about is to learn from the testimonies and stories of other people who've sought to do this. We're not the first people who've ever tried to have a relationship with God, and so we would be wise to look at the experiences of other people, see the, the struggles that they had, the experiences that they had, and the joys that they had, to learn from them and to learn from their relationships things that we can apply in our relationship with God today. And so that's one of the reasons we're going back specifically uh, to this Old Testament book, the book of Ruth, because it shows us that. It shows us people pursuing a relationship with God with all of the complexity that life brings. And it is just that. Life is complex. Life is difficult. When we start a new year, it's not simply about us making a list of the things that we want to happen, and just by making the list, all of a sudden they happen. That's just not how life works. 
And when we pursue a relationship with God, it isn't simply about deciding in our mind, well, I'm going to have this great relationship, and what do you know, everything becomes easy, and, and every door is open, and every pathway is just cleared for us to do that. That's not how life works. And so it's also helpful not just to look back on someone else's testimony, but in this case, to look back on a testimony where there is a significant amount of struggle, a significant amount of pain and loss in the pursuit of their relationship with God and how they lived out their faith in the midst of a variety of challenges that take place. We won't even be five verses into chapter one before almost everything falls apart for the characters in our story. And so it's right away, God through his word and through the testimony of these people telling us, here is what's possible, a relationship that's possible in spite of all of the difficulties and all of the challenges that life is going to throw your way and my way. So now Ruth chapter 1, we'll read the chapter in its entirety. This is on page 222 if you're using one of these Bibles provided for you. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malone and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, 
and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And this will conclude our reading for today. So hopefully you saw that, yes, in those first five verses, we learned that about everything that could go bad for a couple of women did go bad. And one of the first points that we can make from this, I'm actually in today's outline going to use two words that I regularly encourage people not to use when they're talking to other people, especially for spouses to use in conversation with one another. The two words that should generally be off limit when two spouses are talking to one another are always and never. So that if someone says, well, you always, if there could be a buzzer that just would ring and say, "Uh uh-uh, no, you have to rephrase that. Well, I never, uh, stop, stop, this isn't going to go well if now we have to not only talk about this, but now we have to talk about the whole length of our relationship and everything that we've ever done and any time we've ever gotten into a single fight. Not going to help the situation at all. I'm going to use both of those words twice today. So I know I'm kind of walking on tough ground. I have to make a case for why I would use these words today comfortably, but I'll use, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll use the word always twice and the word never twice. The first time is that life always surprises That's one of the first things that we learn as we come to this story, that life always surprises us. As I kind of already alluded to, life just doesn't work uh, based on the decisions that we make. So that if we say, you know, yes, it's 2014, I want to lose more weight this year, so just because I decided that that's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. The way life works more often than not is when we make a decision like that, all of a sudden, we're invited to several parties and several events where there's more food available to us than we had in the months prior. Well, wait a minute, I just made this goal in my mind that I was going to do this thing, and now all of a sudden I'm faced with all these temptations. Or we say, I'm going to try to be more disciplined in my personal finances. I want in December 31st of 2014 to have more money in the savings account. Okay, I decided that. Well, the way life usually works is that your transmission then goes out like two weeks later and you're wondering now how you can maintain the goal you made when you have this huge expense that you weren't expecting or a medical bill or something, but life is filled with surprises. It's never a direct line from point A to point B in any of the goals or the endeavors that we make. 
And so anyone who pursues pre-marriage counseling here at Lakeside, one of the things that I require of them is to role play two scenarios. Because oftentimes it's easy at the beginning of a relationship when a couple is just trying to get to know each other and see if they agree on things to think, well, we're just in good shape if we agree on things. And so somebody will come and say, oh, no, no, we know, we're, we're totally agreed, we're going to have two kids in 10 years and, and, and we're on the same page in that. But okay, life doesn't work that way. Life doesn't just flow out of the decisions that you make. Or someone who's kind of thinking about, uh, well, this is the college I might go to and I'm in this program and I'm getting this degree because I'm hoping to get this job once I graduate. Well, okay, but life doesn't work that way. You might pursue that degree, you might love it, and there might be a prolonged period of time before you find the job that you love. Or you might have the job that you love and that job is no longer available to you for reasons that are outside of your control. But in every area of our lives, so one of the two things I, I, I ask a couple to think through and to role play is what they would say to one another, what they would feel, that what they think they would feel, and what they would communicate to one another if they found out they weren't able to have children, and then what they would say and communicate to one another if they lost their jobs and for a prolonged period of time had to live off of savings or the support of other family and friends. Because in the course of our lives, from beginning to end, it's likely that we'll face either those scenarios or people that we know and care about will be in those scenarios and they'll be looking to us for support, advice, and counsel. Because life is totally filled with surprises. Here's the first surprise in our story. It says that there was a famine in the land. And here they are, they live in Bethlehem. What Bethlehem means, if we translate it, it means house of bread. And here they are living in a town that's known for its, uh, if you will, its agriculture. It's, It's called the house of bread and there's a famine in the land. So if in the course of this marriage between Naomi and Elimelech, they said, where's a great place to settle? Well, let's settle here. We love the school system. The neighbors are great. I mean, this would just be a fun place to be. A famine comes into the land and they have to look at each other and say, well, how's the school system now? Well, the school system doesn't really matter if our kids can't even eat to get there. So a situation comes about that requires everybody in the town to think about their choices and the decisions that they've made. But everybody who decided that Bethlehem was a great place to live is now discovering that they have to adjust and they have to do something different. And this is true of this family. What they decide to do is to actually leave the country of Israel just outside of it and to go into the land of Moab. It's not very far, but it is outside of the boundaries of Israel at that time. And they sojourn there so that their family can have life, so that they can continue to live and endure. Here's another reality of life, though. Surprises come up even when we make adjustments and course corrections. So they go, their their reason for leaving, if we could have interviewed them on their way out of town, why are you making this decision? Well, I don't want my family to suffer. And so, so that my family cannot suffer, so that we can live longer, we're leaving Bethlehem. They get to this new town and there's food there, but other surprises come. The first is that Elimelech passes away. The father of the house dies. We don't know the circumstances behind it. There's not much detail that's given to us. Simply the statement in verse 3, 
But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. Then these two took Moabite wives in verse 4 and it gives us their names, Orpah and Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And then both of the sons also die. Now we don't know if the 10 years is 10 years from the time that Elimelech died and the length of time that they'd been married or if 10 years covers the whole amount of time that they'd been there. But it's a long enough time that we can surmise from this that even in the marriage that these people had been married long enough that if they could have had kids up to that point, they probably would have. That they had been married for several years and neither of the couples had produced children. And so here's Naomi after 10 at least years, maybe slightly more, and they went to this place so that the family could survive so that they could continue, so that they could have health and life. And her husband is gone, and her sons are gone. So even the adjustments they made to the surprises that life brought, there were still more surprises even behind those doors. And this is where she is. And if you were to interview her and you were to ask her, you know, what were your plans for life? What were your goals? What were your dreams? None of this would have been included in what she was hoping to get out of life. Some commentators suggest we could almost think of her as the female equivalent of Job. That Naomi is the female equivalent of Job. That she is someone, by every account in our introduction, a healthy family, there's, there's absolutely no indication that any of this is happening because they've done something wrong. In our minds, we we want to find a connection to things. And, well, if you suffered this much, it must be because of some sin in your life. But as the story is being told to us, they're making very clear, there's no hint that anyone here has done something wrong, and because they did something wrong, they're going through this form of suffering, and they're dealing with all of these surprises. These aren't surprises that are happening because of sin. They're surprises that are happening just because of life. Because of what life means in this fallen and broken world, bad things happen even when there's no direct cause or reason for them happening. And that's the case for this family. And so it says then in verse 6, one of the ways she responds to this is while she's working now as a widow with two daughter-in-laws, she hears in some way that there's food again in Bethlehem. She gets word that the Lord has visited his people, which means there's not a famine anymore. If she returns home, there's at least something to return home to. And so she gathers everything together. It seems like her daughter-in-laws are helping kind of get ready for this trip. They're all doing this together. And then she, Naomi comes to a point and she says to them, you shouldn't come back with me. You should stay. There's When we get back there, I still have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to offer you here. When we get back there, I have nothing to offer you. If I, even if I did, the amount of time it would take is just, I wouldn't ask that of you two women. They'd been kind to their mother-in-law. They'd helped her. They'd cared for her. And so she wishes a blessing upon them and says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. May he show you mercy like you've been merciful and compassionate to me. 
But from her perspective of everything that she can see is possible now that most of her plans have seemed to have failed, that she looks to them and she says, don't come with me. I'm not the person you should hitch your wagon to. I don't know what's going on, but if there are curses, I think I'm cursed. And I just don't know that I'm the person that you should be spending your time with. They both protest initially and say, no, 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 no. We're going to return. And then eventually the one daughter says, okay. She takes her advice. And we need not be critical of her. Uh, the, The passage isn't critical of her. But she takes Naomi's advice and she returns to her home and we don't know what becomes the rest of her story. But Ruth protests even further and she gives to us in verse 15 through 17 one of the most powerful expressions of what love is in all of the Bible. So I'll just read it again, starting in verse 16. And here we learn that life is always full of surprises. And next we learn that love never fails. Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. This is, in the Bible, the closest thing we have to what is now developed in the church as the vows that we ask a bride and a groom to exchange with one another. That they look at one another and say, I'm with you for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. In the Bible, the only time that's actually expressed is not between a bride and a groom. It's expressed between a daughter and a mother. But it's still an example, and one of the best examples we have in any story in the Bible, of what real love is. She sees this condition that her mother-in-law is going through. She sees the pain that she's going through. She sees even her mother-in-law's concern enough for her that she would wish herself to be completely alone so as to not drag them along into her own misery. And there is something in the relationship they had for at least 10 years and the way in which she's watching this woman endure all of this struggle and respond to all of these surprises that she's so moved by it that she responds in unconditional love toward her. It doesn't say, well, I'll do this if you do this for me. I'll do this if you. No, it's unconditional. It is, you're doing everything you can to push me away from you, to tell me I shouldn't go with you, but I'm standing here and telling you I'm all in. That you can count on me. That I love you in such a way that I will stay with you no matter what happens. For everything else that has surprised us, for everything else that has failed us, We're still here. And she expresses her love to her. And so powerfully, not just with the words, but even with her emotions, in verse 18 it says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. It is always right uh, 
to express love in this way towards someone. Whenever we're thinking about what is God's will for my life and what does he want me to do, and in, in some way our thoughts are towards the expression of love towards people, commitment, faithfulness, mercy, kindness. We never have to pray and ask, God, do you want me to do that? It's always right. Love never fails when it's expressed, when it's real love and it flows from God. But she says something also powerful. It's not only a commitment to Naomi, but Ruth has seen in the course of this relationship, she has seen a faith exhibited by Naomi and Elimelech and then her husband that she knows about the God they serve. So that her commitment is not just to Naomi. It's not just, I'll be the best person I can be to you. But it's a commitment also to her God. She says, your people will be my people and your God, my God. We're not given the details of of the conversations that happen between them as a family. But clearly, in this period of time, this family lived out their faith, their relationship with God enough that this young girl saw it and said, I want that kind of relationship with God. I want to follow your God. Not just, I I, want to know you and I want to have a relationship with you. Because from every way we could perceive of things in a human perspective, if that was the case, she would have done what her sister-in-law did and said, oh, I I guess I shouldn't be here. But there was a lived out faith in Naomi's life, in Elimelech's life, in the family's life, that Ruth saw it and desired it, wanted it, and wanted it even though she also had a front row seat to all of the pain and all of the suffering that they were experiencing. Just think about that for a moment. Do I live out my faith in such a way that on a good day, somebody looks at it and says, there's something attractive about your God, the faith that you're living. And then, do I live out my faith on a bad day in such a way that someone still says, man, there is something not about you, but about your God that makes me want to know more about him makes me want to have a relationship with him. One of the things that's throughout this chapter that is clear that Naomi believes, that therefore Ruth can pick up on, is that she believes that God is involved in everything. She believes that God is involved in everything. And so she could affirm what was later written down by the Apostle Paul in Romans, which is where this series title comes from, that the God who is out there and who rules and reigns over everything in some way can work all things for good. In Romans eight twenty eight, Paul says that God is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him. But one of the things that's clear here is that that, that's something that Naomi could say. I do believe God is able to work in all things and through all things and nothing surprises him. Life is full of tons of surprises for me. 
but she doesn't believe that all of this stuff has happened because God is somehow just off dealing with another planet somewhere and he's not paying attention and he has no idea what's going on. So much so that she says in verse uh, 13, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So even in all of the trial and in all of the suffering that she's experiencing, she does not deny God's presence in the midst of all of it. She doesn't say, I'm so sorry for your sake that God abandoned me, that God deserted me, that he's just not around, that he didn't hear my prayers, that he didn't listen to my voice. That isn't what she says. She says, I'm so exceedingly bitter that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she could also sing the song that we sing, which were the words of Job, that uh, blessed is the Lord who gives and takes away. That if I believe and I thank God when it's a sunny day and the, and the weather is warm and I'm like, oh, this is the day that the Lord has made. And then when I hear on Tuesday it's gonna be sub, oh my goodness, and you're like, no, God clearly had nothing to do with this day. I mean, I don't know what happened. Some kind of lost communication took place. Well, we, we can't have it both ways. If we affirm that he is the one that we give thanks and that we give praise to and honor for the good things that we receive, then he's also around and completely aware and knows about all of the pain and all of the suffering that we also experience. Our surprises are not his surprises. He knows what's going on. And that's one of the tensions that we always struggle with when we experience suffering and pain. But for me as a minister of the gospel, to say honestly to you, I believe that God can redeem and restore any person or any situation. You can come back and say, okay, do you believe he could have stopped it in the first place? If I, if I believe he's big enough that he can overcome any situation, that he can redeem and that he can restore any person, there's no one too lost for him, there's no situation too dark or too bleak for him, to proclaim that he can do that is to proclaim how powerful he is and how great he is and how all-knowing he is. And so it's completely honest and completely human for you to say, okay, so could he have done that like an hour earlier before it happened? And the answer is yes. There is no way to affirm the power of God to redeem and to restore and not also affirm that he's powerful enough and aware enough that everything that's going on, so why did he let it happen? The Bible doesn't give us an answer to that. Like I said, it doesn't, as we read these first five verses, it doesn't provide for us this point-for-point description of here's why God let all of these things happen. We don't know. And so it's a distinction that we have to make. We're not saying all things are good. Everything that happens is good. Everything that happens is according to God's will and fits in his plan. The Bible has no problem saying things are evil, things are wrong, people are rebellious, people are disobedient. So bad things happen. The conviction that we have, though, is that God is able to take all things and in some way to work them together for good. That there is no evil, that there is no sin, that there is no broken relationship that ultimately surprises God 
and that therefore God does not already know how to bring redemption and restoration out of it. And that's the kind of faith that Naomi has. I mean, she's saying, I believe God is in all of this. And I believe he's doing something. I don't always know what he's doing. But if I believe he's good, I know that at the end of the day, he's going to work it for good. It's not all good along the way. Plenty of bad things are happening. But I believe that God is in all of it. And this is the kind of robust faith that Ruth looks at in this woman. And she looks back at her her options of her other friends and family and the gods they believe in. And she says, I want to follow your God. I want to believe in your God who is big enough for all of my problems, for all of my concerns. And a God who's large enough and strong enough that he really can bring redemption and bring restoration to any person or to any situation that's out there. And so Naomi, if you will, and her families, their love for God never failed. In those years, their relationship with God, their pursuit of him, their desire to glorify and honor him and to thank him for the good and the bad, for what he gave and what he took away, their ability to do that was what attracted then this young woman to look at it and say, that's what I want. I don't have that. I don't have that kind of a relationship with God that I trust him with everything, that I come to him with all things that I've experienced in my life. And so the next thing we learn is now they come back to the town. So they return. And now here's Naomi. She has this daughter who's very likely, because they're in Moab, uh, Ruth is of a totally different ethnicity, color, skin, language, uh, different than Naomi. So she comes back. Here's these two women that for all intents and purposes look mismatched. And so the people look at her. Time has passed and they say, is this Naomi? And she says, it is, but don't even call me that. And she changes her name to a name which expresses just the difficulty that she's experiencing in all of the loss and the pain that she is going through. In verse 20, she says, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So it's, it's a tension. She's... She still believes in God. She's not denying him. But she's acknowledging that there is a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of loss that she is going through. But here she comes and she believes that she can still return home. There might be questions. There might be gossip that goes on about what in the world happened. What did you do that caused this to happen? But she still believes that home is a place that she can return to. And she believes it because she heard that the Lord had provided again for Bethlehem. And so one of the convictions that she has is that God always provides. In any situation that he allows to come into our lives, in whatever depth of pain that we've experienced, he always provides then grace that is sufficient to get through and to endure the trial that he allows to come. 
and she believes this. If she didn't believe this, she wouldn't have returned home. She wouldn't have gone back. She just would have said, you know what? There's no point in doing anything anymore. I might as well just stay here and die. But she believes that God provides, and so she goes back home. And then the way our chapter ends on a positive note, it starts in tragedy, but it ends with this glimmer of hope because as they return, it says they come back, and it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Which at this time, we have no idea what that means. But that's definitely a lot better than where we started. There's a new season. There's a new opportunity here. Believing that God always provides. And the last statement for us as we reflect on this is that our, our effort in maintaining our faith in God and our relationship with him in all circumstances, our seeking to love God, the work that that requires never ends. The work never ends when our mission and our goal is to pursue loving God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. We can't just look back and say, oh, I, I, I committed myself to God 10 years ago. Totally fine. I said, 10 years ago, I know a whole bunch has gone wrong in your life in the last 10 years. Some stuff has gone great. But with each day, your life has to have been filled with surprises, has to have been filled with struggles and challenges. And so if, if we can only look back on our relationship, say, I had a relationship, That doesn't tell us anything about the present. To to pursue God and to love him is something that requires ongoing effort and work on our part. That when Satan wants to bring all kinds of trials and all kinds of temptations to get us to doubt, to get us to despair, to get us to no longer believe that God is really who he said he is, we must continue in a variety of ways. We continue in prayer. We continue in reading our word. We read stories of other people and say, eventually when we get to chapter four and we see how this whole thing finishes, you know, I know that God can do this because I've seen him do it in the lives of other people. I've even seen him do it in my life at different times. And so part of why we get together in corporate worship and and we don't just recommend everyone just stay home and listen to a CD and listen to a a player is because we need to hear each other's stories about God's faithfulness. And we need to hear each other's stories about our struggles. And when someone says, I don't know how much longer I can take this. That someone else hearing that can say, hey, I don't have any answers for you, but I'll tell you I love you. And I'll tell you that may God do more to me if anything but death parts me from you. We need those kind of relationships together that we worship God together so that in your season of plenty and rejoicing, you can pick up somebody who's down and discouraged and in despair and vice versa. We need each other to pursue our love of God together because in each of our lives, we'll go through these experiences in times we won't know, in places we'll never expect, in situations that we could never imagine. And also then, when we come to church, we realize that this will be a place where that brokenness is also exhibited. You see, we look out and say, oh, there's all these struggles in the world, there's all this, you can just see the consequences of sin out there. If we just kind of come here and we fellowship only with Christians and we won't experience everything that's out there, we might be able to believe that, but the Bible does nothing to make us think that. 
It says, no, we're a collection of people that are all dealing with surprises. We're a collection of sinners. And so we sometimes make the problems worse. And we're going to experience many of those struggles here as well. And so again, the main purpose is not to connect with each other, but together to help all of us connect deeper and deeper with God. Because he's the only one who can work all things for good. He is the only person big enough to deal with all of the surprises that will come your way and my way. And so, yeah, there'll be times when we talk about tips on how to manage our time better and tips on how to handle our finances better and ways to have better communication uh, between each other. But those really aren't the main thing. And they definitely aren't the gospel. What you and I need most fundamentally is to hear about a God who is big enough and capable enough and good enough that he can bring all things together for good. That whatever your 2013 was or your 2012 or whatever your last decade was, wherever you find yourself right now, that you would look at him and believe that he is sufficient and that the love that he has for you and the love that he has for me, that love will never fail. More and more I studied Ruth and then reflected on Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13. Just wonder what stories came to Paul's mind when he wrote these words. But he said, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then here, and just imagine Naomi and Ruth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and confessing that we, we need you. That when we look around at the plans that we've made and the things that we've tried to do on our own and even the ways we've tried to adjust and accommodate all of the struggles that we find in this world, that we still fall short, that we still find ourselves weak and needing help from on high. And so we pray that you would help us to, to never lose sight of our purpose, to know you more, to come to trust you more, to learn more about you and who you are. We just pray that as a church you would help us to, to live out this mission, to believe that you can take all the experiences of our lives, the good and the bad, and that you can work something good out of it because you are good. That you can write a great story because you are great. Help us to, to deflect away from ourselves and to point only to you. And Father, I just pray that through your spirit, as you see in the minds of each person here, and you know the varieties of suffering that are going on, the varieties of pain that exist, the varieties of questions and concerns and doubts. I just pray that you would reveal yourself 
to those hearts, to those minds. For any that are doubting you, that they would come to believe that your love really does give us hope. It enables us to believe all things, to hope all things, to endure all things, and that it never, never fails. In your son's name we pray, amen.